0: Open up your Bibles, please, once again to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8. I hope that you would agree with me that when we gather together to worship the Lord, part of our worship is indeed lifting up our praises and adoration to Him as we just did, lifting up our supplications and our prayers to Him as we have done, but also it's coming and bowing our knee at His Word. I was sharing with my daughter just this morning that how the Word of God, it is a means of grace for us, beloved, when we gather on His special day, His holy day, His Sabbath day, And why is it a means of grace? Because again and again, and especially what we are seeing here in Hebrews chapter 8, as we are navigating and walking through the blessings of the new covenant, it is intended to anchor our souls in the reality that our only hope, our only rest, our only peace in this life is in our union with Christ. And this is what is being done here in Jeremiah 31 in the book of Hebrews chapter 8, we are being reminded as a means of grace, studying these blessed realities of the new covenant. Well, before I get into my message, how about we read the text for today, and then we will, we will come back uh, to the message. Hebrews chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, let's read from, uh, let's pick up at verse 6, verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 8. But now hath he, referring to Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, The days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Will you pray with me? O Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would teach us we ask, O graceful God, that you would be merciful and that you would open up the deep wells of your intention in this usage of the prophet Jeremiah by the inspired writer of Hebrews. Lord, as we expound and navigate and learn and disciple ourselves by the truth and the uh, guide of your blessed word and what it means to participate in the reality of this better this second this new covenant oh god i pray that it would inflame our hearts for a new and a, and a and a more powerful love unto christ help us lord we pray to see your blessed son in every portion of the scripture that we will be interacting with in today's message do this we pray oh god the spirit we are weak we are fickle men, women, boys, and girls, but you, you are true and powerful. Work now in our minds. Help us, bless us, feed us through this means of grace that you have preserved and kept pure for your church. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Amen. Well, we have been, I, I trust, enjoying going through um, Exactly what did this text mean in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34? Because the inspired writer Hebrews was inspired by God the Spirit to place it purposefully and strategically right here in the middle of this sermonic letter, which was intended, we know, we remind ourselves often to keep them from drifting away from what truly they possessed in Jesus Christ. We know that we have already looked at the aspects of Jeremiah 31 and 34, and it distinguished four things in particular of what were markers of the new covenant. The first was that God would supernaturally and powerfully write his law upon the hearts and the minds of participants in the new covenant. And so we looked at that. And today we're going to combine, because they're so closely related, The second blessing and the third blessing of the new covenant, which is intimate fellowship with God and salvific or universal knowledge of God. And then, Lord willing, the final message of understanding Jeremiah 31 and 34 will be the full and the final forgiveness of sins. And so if you have a copy of the sermon notes, you see the roadmap that I'm proposing for you today. I propose to you that we consider first of all that one distinction that you and I who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who claim to be born again by the power of His Spirit, we confess Him to be Lord. One marker of our participation in this new and blessed covenant that is better is an intimate covenant fellowship with God. Our Bibles say, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, beloved, I purposefully describe this as covenant fellowship with God, as you see in your notes. I do that instead of merely fellowship with God. And I do this for the simple reason that this language, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, it is generally and most comprehensively the biblical expression of covenant. Between God and man. For example, among the various old covenants, we learn of how God also promised these very similar blessings that we have in our text today. He did that when he was arranging a covenant with the physical Israelites under the Mosaic covenant, as you see in your sermon notes. Look with me at Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Very similar language, covenant language. God, through the prophet Moses here says, I will take you to be for me to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Church, observe with me here in the old covenant, in this covenantal language that's very similar to where we're at today that was given to Israel through the prophet Moses. It's very similar to what we have. And the reason is because just as the Mosaic covenant, its arrangement functioned as a legal covenant relationship between God and man, then the physical Israelites, with Moses as its mediator, So does this new covenant that's being described here in Hebrews chapter 8. It functions as a formal covenant relationship between God and man again. But the man here represented isn't the Old Testament outward physical Israelites. The man represented here in this covenant relationship as we have been learning is the true spiritual Israelites. Identified, by a work of regeneration upon their hearts. And so this is covenant fellowship. This is intimate covenant uh, fellowship between God and the spiritual Israel. And this is why I'm describing it as a marker of the new covenant. Covenant intimate fellowship. While the language embedded here in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 in the giving of the Mosaic covenant is similar to the new covenant, It is important for us to now consider that the covenant fellowship, the covenant intimacy, which is enjoyed by the new covenant participants, you and I, is distinctly and it is fundamentally much different. Allow me to explain. God did, we see in Exodus, promise in many places throughout the various old covenant arrangements that he would be a God to Israel, didn't he? And that he would be, or they would rather, be his people. However, and principally, it was based upon their obedience. That covenant relationship, that intimacy of, I will be your God and you shall be my people, was always regulated fundamentally upon their obedience. And even though many places, and many of these arrangements did indeed have gracious aspects to them. Their covenant promises I will be your God and you will be my people. And for our current purposes today, the intimacy of fellowship with God in these covenant arrangements was contingent upon their obedience. Look in your sermon notes at Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 18. This comes to the surface. Yes, they did have this relationship with God. He was their God and they were his people. But what I'm driving home is what our author is intending to do is to show us it is distinctively different and it's important that we highlight this. Deuteronomy 26, 16, 18, this comes to the surface, the difference between new covenant participants and the old covenant participants and their fellowship, their covenant fellowship with God. Verse 16, beginning there. The word of God says, this day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Now here's the covenant. Thou, you people, you nation, hast avowed the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments, and his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And, here's the Lord's side of the covenant arrangement, if they do these things. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. We see clearly here in Deuteronomy that the relationship and the intimacy of the fellowship between God and the physical nation of Israel, it is predicated, isn't it, in verse seventeen, upon their covenant vow, their covenant vow in verse seventeen to avowge, to keep His statute and His commandments and His judgments and to hearken unto His voice. Now, coming back to our text in Hebrews. The blessed distinction of the covenant, which here the writer of Hebrews is calling better, second and new. The blessed distinction, church, of this covenant, which Jesus is being identified as its mediator, is not contingent upon our obedience, as was the case with physical Israel, but rather it is contingent upon our union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. This wording that we have in Hebrews, this wording that was given to Jeremiah pointing forward to the final revelation of the new covenant reality that would come in time, space, and history, this language that we have today, I will be to them a God, is not to be taken in the same sense as God relates to all mankind are to all creation. Nor as we've just observed. It is not to be taken in the sense. That as he was particularly God. To physical Israel. Israel. But, as we will further demonstrate, it's to be taken as Him being a God in a unique and in a blessed way to only those who are spiritually born again through the powerful operation of the Spirit unto regeneration by which God writes His law upon the hearts of men and women and places them in union with His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how He is your God. Now what I'm describing here is what constitutes the grounds of God being our God. It's only constituted, it's only legally permissible in our union with Christ. In union with Christ, God relates to us under Christ's headship. And thus, He is our God, just as He was the incarnate Son of God. He was his God. He was Jesus' God. This is what Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 3.23. He says to the church, ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Christ belongs to God. You see, ye are Christ, Paul was saying, and Christ belongs to God. In your union with Christ, God is your God. Jehovah is your God. When, in other words, when Jehovah, this reality, this truth teaches us that when Jehovah God sees us, beloved, he sees us only in our connection to Christ. And just as the Father can never forsake his only begotten Son, nor can he ever forsake to those who are grafted into Christ by his gracious election, which is manifested through a new birth called faith. Now up until this point, understanding the covenant intimacy we have, I've been focusing on what constitutes our fellowship with God being our God and us as his people. I've been, consti- I've been amplifying how that's uh, constituted, how it's made, what's the grounds of it, since our union with Christ as we're under his headship. However, at this point, I'd like, and I think it would be helpful for us to shift away from our covenant grounds of what constitutes us In this relationship with God to more practical or that is to say more experiential aspects of this unique and intimate fellowship that we share as new covenant participants in the church. So let's shift away from the the doctrinal reason of why we're united to God in this unique way to more of the experiential realities that we have as the church. And I want to do so, as you see in your notes, by drawing our attention to the dwelling of God with his people. Let's first consider the dwelling of God with his people under the old covenant. And by doing so, we'll have a backdrop to see the blessed reality experientially we have with God in the new covenant. You see, under the former Mosaic Covenant, which we just looked at in Exodus and Deuteronomy, which our inspired writer of Hebrews doesn't fail to call faulty. He doesn't fail to call it weak. God's presence among his people was symbolized, you know this, don't you, by his dwelling in the inner sanctuary, of uh, first the tabernacle, and then upon its completion in the temple. That's what his dwelling was symbolized by. We know this, as you see in your sermon notes. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 6, 11-13. In a sense, it's, uh, it's reiterated there, God's promise to dwell with them in connection with the temple. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house, and this is referring to the temple that Solomon was chosen to complete, For his father David, unto God, concerning this house, which thou art in building, notice the language, if thou, there's that contingency language again, under the old Mosaic covenant, if thou will walk in my statutes, and execute my judgments, and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I, you see it, if thou, then will I perform my word with thee, which I spake unto David thy father, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. But as we have already observed, beloved, this level or this type, you could say of fellowship with God, which was enjoyed by the Israelites, by God abiding in their midst, in connection with the temple. It was inseparably linked to their obedience. And it's even, we see it here once again. That God's dwelling amongst them, Ross, in the temple is inseparably linked to their obedience. If thou wilt walk in my statutes, then I will perform my word in connection with his presence in the temple. We know from the chronicles of redemptive history, especially the readings in the book of Jeremiah, as it's recorded in the scripture, that oftentimes when they turned from God and they committed apostasy, that God removed his presence from among them, didn't he? He wasn't among his people. When they broke the rules of the covenant, even after being granted multiple opportunities through a long-suffering and patient God to repent, eventually God would go to the place of enlisting Nebuchadnezzar as he did in our text reading this morning, of enlisting him as one of his servants. Did you notice that? He called Nebuchadnezzar one of his servants to carry them away into captivity and to chastise them and to judge them. Now, by all considerations, I think that we at must minimum admit that God's dwelling under the old covenant period was a true and it was a powerful reality for the old covenant physical Israelites to experience his dwelling in the inner temple because his symboled presence there ensured them of continual covenant relationship. He was still their God They hadn't apostatized so much that he wasn't there as long as he's in that temple. And in so much as he is in that temple dwelling amongst us, we can hope for, we can pray for continued prosperity, provision and protection. But dear friends, also consider while we admit there were benefits of his presence, there was fellowship with God in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Let us also remember what a fearful And what a dreadful reality, especially in light of Jeremiah 25 this morning, which we read to know that those covenant blessings, his dwelling in their inner temple and all the associated benefits that come along with it fundamentally was contingent upon their obedience to the law. You don't keep the covenant. I will judge you. I will pour out my cup of wrath upon you. And that's exactly what we read this morning. Well, Does God know us the same way? Are we his people the same way in this new covenant reality that's being described in Hebrews chapter 8? Well, no, dear friends. We are not. We are not. There is a stark distinction. And to see that, we shift now from looking at the dwelling of God with his old covenant people connected with their obedience to now the dwelling of God with us as his new covenant people. In significant contrast to God's dwelling in the temple with the old covenant physical Israel, we learn from our Bibles of a different experiential reality that is known through God's dwelling within the hearts and minds of his new covenant spiritual Israel. This is what the Bible teaches us this new covenant reality of the spirits indwelling a true participant of the new covenant through a new birth, beloved, listen, is fundamentally what constitutes every Christian individually and us together here today as being described in the Scriptures as the temple of the living God. If we were gathered here today Confessing Christ as Lord, but yet not having the operation of the Holy Spirit upon which He subscribes His law on our hearts, to where we voluntarily and with joy gather as His people and sing as we did in the first hymn of this morning, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, proclaiming He is the only one true God. We are doing nothing more and we would be no better than the physical Israel of the old covenant. Ah, now we see the distinction. Now we see how he is our God. And now we see how we are really his people in a fundamentally different light. And how you and I can be described as the temple of God. He indwells our hearts and our minds. Look in your sermon notes. This contrast between the physical temple and the spiritual temple, this contrast between the dwelling of God formally in an external sense and now this more powerful and more personal way comes through again and again in the New Testament, but most profoundly in the epistles of Paul. He says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, know ye not. What's he mean there? Know ye not. Think what you are part of. Dear Corinthians in the church, know ye not that ye are the temple of God. So many voices were whispering to them, seeking to confuse them about this baptism, this teacher, this place of worship. You have to do this. You have to do that. No, you not. Don't you know you're the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Beloved, that's fundamentally much different language than what we were just learning in Deuteronomy and 1 Kings. He says elsewhere in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians 6:19. you know the verse well, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God." and you are not your own. Elsewhere, as I've given you in your sermon notes, elsewhere the new covenant community of Christ is described in this experiential, more powerful way as the spiritual temple made up of living stones each and every one of us. And so young ones, we get a picture here That when the Holy Spirit of God operates upon the mind, the affections, what we call the heart of a sinful person. He changes the disposition of that person. This is what we call being born again. This is why Jesus said, and we reemphasize in Jeremiah 25, the need to be born again. What we're saying, young ones, is when God convinces you of the reality of your need of a Savior. Your need of the covering of Jesus Christ's blood over and for your sins. You're made a living spiritual stone. And you, along with other little boys and girls, or along with us older Christians, all of us put together, we are the temple of God all over the world. This is the point of 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 5. I give into your sermon notes. Look with me. Peter admonished the church, lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. I love this description of Christians as humble little babies, as newborn babes. Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so, be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We cannot underestimate the significance of what occurred on the day of Pentecost in connection with the reality of this indwelling of God in a more powerful and personal way. It was a significant shift in redemptive history that day of Pentecost. It was as if it were Jehovah God was making a final shift away from that which the physical temple pointed unto and promised To a constituting of a final revelation of what now was. Him dwelling with his people. In a powerful and a significant way upon that day of Pentecost. God set his sanctuary. He set his dwelling place in the midst of his people. And thereby confirming with them this covenant. That I will be your God and you will be my people. And I because of your union with Christ the blessed promise of the gospel. Will never remember your sins. No more. Well, there's a lot of applications just at this point before we go to our second heading that we can make of this true meaning of what it means to have God as our God in our union with Christ and us being His people as the elect. In stark contrast at times to the fickle fellowship experience between God and the old covenant physical Israelites. Why was it fickle? Because of their covenant breaking again and again. Now, beloved, now through Christ... And the blessed promises of this covenant blessing you see, we're calling the second blessing of God being our God and his people. You and I enjoy an intimate fellowship with God that is marked not by our steadfastness. It's marked by his steadfastness and his stability. I can only rest because of what Christ has done. I can only know and feel the comfort of the Father's love upon me. Not by that faithfulness of my own. The new covenant reality and that is to be herald and is to encourage you Sunday by Sunday in the Lord's Supper is that Christ has finished it all. It all rests upon Jehovah's unconditional love and commitment to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to us, His church to whom belong to Jesus. This is the second blessing, friends, of the new covenant that was being inaugurated in this intertestimonial time. But let's move on to verse 11 and our second heading for the message today, which is the third blessing of this covenant. I hope you see the, the closeness and connection. This is why I'm combining them to what would be the universal knowledge of God. The universal knowledge of God. We've already considered the intimate covenant fellowship we share with God in the latter half of verse 10. And now I think that it's just a natural preparation for what we read here in verse 11, where the Bible says that from the least to the greatest, all shall know the Lord. This third experience of Knowing the Lord, everyone that participates in this new covenant, in the way that we've described, having the law of God written upon their hearts. He is in union with Christ, and thus God is their God, and they are His people. Notice that this blessing is practically applied. It's not like the first one or the second one. Notice with me the text says, This blessing, that they all know me from the leadest to the greatest, it applies the words this way, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Now this particular part of Jeremiah's prophecy, particularly as it's being used here in chapter 8 of Hebrews, has has not been without centuries of misinterpretation. And it's primarily because it's been used to argue this text that the need for individual teachers and individual instructors with the new covenant reality being brought into... Time, space, in history, and the old covenant vanishing away—the need for the old covenant physical temple, the old covenant physical promises and structure—being it's been argued that as that passes away during this intertestimonial period, that everyone who has God's law written upon his heart, everyone in union by a new birth with Jesus Christ, will in some way be fully equipped with the complete biblical revelation of what is needed. They argue that due to the supernatural sovereign eye will work accomplished by God among new covenant believers, that any subsequent exhortations or instruction in the things of God aren't needed. You and the Holy Spirit will figure this out. Now, you may think, well, who in the world would think like that? Uh, Dear friends, um, this is still around today this kind of attitude that it's me, Jesus, and and I don't need a teacher to teach me. Uh, It's very prominent. It's still amongst the fringe churches. Uh, I don't mean to exclusively mischaracterize anyone, but it is a prominent error amongst their circles. Uh, Perhaps you've heard in our own climate today in the church in the West where people say, you know, God told me, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord said to me, and there may be something way out in left field, not nowhere in his word, and you come alongside, and but you see, I'm not going to listen to you because the Holy Spirit told me. You get, you get this kind of misunderstanding, and a lot of times the arguments are rooted in a misinterpretation of this very passage we have in front of us. I would like to answer uh, this and, and help us to understand what is being taught here in verse 11 by acknowledging that a lot of the misinterpretations, I think, are appealing to inequality of Christians. It seems as though that fundamentally at the basis of their concern is that we are unnecessarily using portions of the old New Testament, I'm sorry, and we're using this verse to build a hierarchy of people in the church. And we're not um, emphasizing enough or appreciating enough what the text says that the least to the greatest they all shall know me. And so they they tend to be in their misrepresentations wanting to emphasize the equality of Christians. So let's go there. Let's do that. Let us begin by acknowledging that if we have rightly divided the word of God and properly interpreted verse 10... God, what it meant to write his law upon our hearts. And then us being, him being a God to us and us being his people. Well then, we do stand, every one of us, in a very unique relationship to God through Christ as we are united to him. And we all are, in a sense, equal that way. As you see in your sermon notes, we are all equally sinful And we're all equally saved. I agree to that. I would say amen to that. I I understand your concern of elevating some Christians over others. There's not categories of Christians in the house of God. We're all equal. We've all been sinners saved by grace. Simply meaning the truth of Romans 3.10 as you see it in your sermon notes. We're all condemned prior to conversion. Prior to the first blessing of the new covenant. The supernatural working of God writing his law upon our hearts. We're all there no matter our ethnicity, no matter our race, no matter uh, our, our sexual or sex, no matter our status in society, it's by God's eternal electing grace, which in time, space, and history births within us all, saving faith. Yes, we agree to that. That's true. Also, we would say, and we ought to, because the Bible teaches it, that all of us are equally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We don't ever want to under... Uh, estimate that we don't ever want to devalue that in some circles there seems to be a tendency to say that someone has more of the holy spirit than another well that's hogwash dear friends i know hogwash isn't the most eloquent theological language but you know coming from the midwest here we 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 say hogwash if something just didn't right no, there's, we're all equally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that anyone who repents and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit of God. This is evident just in one sampling of Scripture. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. Look at with, with me at Ephesians 1.13-14. We all have the Holy Spirit. In whom Peter said, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul said, in whom you also were sealed with the promised... Holy Spirit, when did that happen, everyone? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. What's being described there, young ones, is the first blessing of the new covenant. God writing His law upon a person's heart. Through His Spirit, they heard the gospel, they believed, they did this because they were enabled by God's I will work. He goes on to say, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. We could go elsewhere, but for the sake of time, these texts, we can know, beloved, that to be a new covenant participant, that is, a Christian means you have been dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and furthermore, you're permanently sealed by this Spirit. You are born again. And we're all in here. None of us raising our hands saying that we have more of the Spirit than someone else. All of us who have been truly brought to the cross of Calvary would raise our hands and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to say something real quick. I was reading this week um, uh, a a, a historical biography by a well-known minister who was used throughout England. And this man had a very, shall we say, sketchy, Life prior to coming to salvation, he had a child out of wedlock, uh, so forth and so on. He was a drugger, so forth and so on. Ah, but he was brought. He was brought into fellowship with the one true living God by the cross of Jesus Christ. He had God's law written upon his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, He knew what it meant to have God as his God in union with Christ and him as one of God's sons. And so this man, he begins to go all throughout Europe proclaiming the true gospel. Repent and believe. Ye must be born again. Friends, that man began to write behind his name, SS. Like, what does that mean? And so all the learned, all the the, the scholarly, academic clergyman of the day, they began to kind of mock him and kind of make fun of him and say, what, what, what's this SS mean? We know D.D., Doctor of Divinity. you know We know these other titles that are behind his name. What's this SS? And you've already connected the dots, haven't you? He wrote in his defense, he said, all of these titles I see nowhere in the New Testament for a gospel minister, but only one. And he listed like five or six verses. He said, S.S. stands for Saved Sinner. <laughs> and he was. He realized who he was. He was a saved sinner. And so we we admit this in the church. Having, though, admitting this, I would suggest to you that the overall context of Hebrews, what he's building up to, and more immediately what we've considered in verses 9 and 10, that the right interpretation of verse 11 they don't teach their neighbor or their brother because they all know me from the least to the greatest. It's talking about a knowledge that's universally salvific. In this third blessing or third promise of the new covenant, just as the case was with the previous two, the experienced reality of the new covenant is once again being contrasted with the weakness of the old covenant. Well, what about the old covenant saints? Are you saying that they didn't know God? Are you saying that the Old Covenant believers didn't know God? Well, be to be clear, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that there was no salvific knowledge of God among the Old Covenant physical Israelites. In fact, we know that there was a salvific knowledge of God amongst the Old Covenant Israelites in an elect few by which the Spirit of God manifested great fruits and true saving knowledge? How, other, or how, how else can we explain that King David, who is living under the old covenant amidst physical Israel, how else can we account for his sayings in Psalms 36.10 where he says, "Oh, continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. You see, friends, David and some elect few. They knew the Lord. However, the majority among the people, they didn't know the Lord, like Eli's sons, who are described as corrupt. And the Bible says Eli's sons didn't know the Lord. While under the old covenant, not every ethnic Israelite was a true spiritual Israelite, salvificly knowing the Lord, some were, like David, Not every ethnic Israelite was indeed indwelt by the Spirit of God, though some were, like Jacob. Not every ethnic Israelite by birth had the law of God written upon his heart, though some did, like Moses. And this all goes to demonstrate for us that under the old covenant, there was within that covenant community a remnant. That is the spiritual Israel residing in the midst of national Israel. I think that this insight to the, the nature of some of the Old Covenant participants goes further to make sure that we know what we're interpreting in Hebrews 8.11. He's contrasting the weakness of the Old Covenant with the new. The knowledge here isn't that they had systematic the- theological encyclopedia memorization of every doctrine of Christ in the Trinity. That's not, And so there was no need to teach one another. No, it's talking about the salvific knowledge. The salvific knowledge. Everyone in the new covenant participates in a real saving knowledge of the Lord. Their union with Christ is again, their standing in the constitution, what makes them a person, a child of God. Just to further drill this down. Consider since we've been going through Jeremiah, how that back in chapter 5. You remember Jeremiah? He went to the lowliest classes of people in chapter 5, verse 4. And when we got amongst just the common folk, he said, God, no one here knows you. Well, he wasn't talking about a head knowledge, friends. We went through that when we read Jeremiah. He was talking about a salvific knowledge. A heart knowledge. A real knowledge, savingly, of the Lord. And then do you remember in verse 5? He went in, verse chapter 5, verse 5, he left the lowly people and he went to the higher-ups in the nation and their theocracy. He went to the, the priests and he went to the king and all the, the inner court of the king. And what did he find there? They didn't know the Lord either. And it was this reality that they did not, the majority of them, know the Lord that brought Jeremiah... The title that he's well known for, the weeping prophet, because he cried, oh God, is there any that know you in Israel? This biblical data from Jeremiah, friends, is fundamental and key in properly knowing that we're rightly handling the word of God here in verse 11. What it reveals to us is that Jeremiah spent most of his ministry going to the people that God had already previously covenanted with. Didn't he? We read it in Deuteronomy. We read it in Exodus. We were reminded of it. They were again and again in verse Kings. You, I'm your God and you're my people. If and then, if and then, Jeremiah went to those covenanted people and what was the central theme of his message? Repent and know the Lord. Repent and know the Lord. Such is not the case with us. Why? Why? Because what we have acknowledged thus far and rightly interpreting, verse 10, God has made us his covenant people. We know him. And so in this community, no one's evangelizing one another. Unless there is just really clear fruits that this person isn't really a believer. Then of course we were. But the norm is we're not doing what Jeremiah did in the new covenant community. Because God has brought us all through His Son into a real saving knowledge of Him. So by now, we ought to be fairly confident that verse 11, the knowledge here, is referring to a salvific knowledge. But what about the application? What about the application that we see in verse 11? It's right there on the surface. The text does say, those who have this saving knowledge shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother. Does this mean, as some attempt to make it mean, that upon conversion every individual stands complete in biblical knowledge and revelation and therefore doesn't need any further instruction or discipleship? Well, I think that there's several reasons why that's a horrible, horrible interpretation. It's a, it's, it's a misguided interpretation. It definitely does not take the full counsel of God's word in consideration. I'm going to give you just a couple as you see in your sermon notes. Here's why that is not the right interpretation. Beloved, in Matthew 28.20, consider with me that we learned there that as new covenant, regenerate, salvifically knowing the Lord, born again disciples of Jesus Christ, that the apostles, who are the very foundations of, Of the church, which would follow after them in future generations, they were commanded by the Lord Jesus Himself to do what? You have it in your notes. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, lest I misinterpret that or misunderstand it, I go to my Greek lexicon and I look up the word teach. Well, did they mean really teach? I gave it to you right there. You see what the Greek word holds with it. It means the meaning to hold a discourse with others in order to instruct them and to deliver didactic discourses. All right. It was a good translation then, wasn't it? They were commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to go give instructions and teach. Oh, but wait a minute. I thought Hebrews 11 said that we don't need teachers. We don't need men and other brothers to teach us. Well, what about when the Apostle Paul, as you've seen in your sermon notes, in second Timothy chapter two, verse two, told Timothy, Timothy, thou hast heard of me, of many among many witnesses, the same, the things that you have heard, the things that Paul taught, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. That Greek phrase, commit thou, I showed it to you in your sermon notes, it means to set forth from oneself and explain. The word teach there is being used is the exact same Greek word that we see or we just saw in Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Beloved, the scriptures do not contradict one another. According to these two samples from the New Testament of direct commands to give instructions to one another as Christians, we know that verse 11 is not meaning that after true regeneration there's no need to be furtherly taught, further teaching, to be furtherly discipled or taught. Amen? A couple of head nods. Maybe. maybe you're convinced. Well, let's take a further step. Let's take just another further step, and I hope you see the appropriateness of this because it's so relevant for our day and age. If there is admittedly a clear command for Christians to instruct and teach one another, as we just observed, who's to do that? Does the Bible teach that after a person's initial conversion, after coming to this saving knowledge of God by which their union with Christ, God is their God and they are God's people, they've been brought into the covenant. Does the Bible teach us that upon such a conversion that that person should be granted a license to go start some sort of internet teaching ministry, some podcast teaching ministry, some apologetic ministry, or perhaps be be thrust into a teaching office? in the church, the local church of God? Would this, friends, be helpful? Or would it be confusing? I hope you agree that these are important and relevant questions for our generation, especially in light of the access to information and the ability to put oneself out in the highways and byways of information. Let me be the first to admit that nowhere... Nowhere, nowhere does the New Testament reserve the authority to preach and teach others exclusively and solely to pastors in local churches. You will not be able to prove that from the Bible. I would cite Hebrews 5.12, Titus 2, three and 4, and 1 Peter 3.15. Pastors of local churches aren't exclusively given the ability by the Holy Spirit of God to teach and preach. To further... Advance that truth. Look in your sermon notes from what is common and typical amongst most Protestant confessions of faith about this issue, where our confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, says, Although, quote, it be incumbent on the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching of the word by way of office, meaning they have to be able to teach, yet the work, of preaching the word is not so peculiarly confined to them but that others also here it is gifted and fitted by the holy spirit for it the work of preaching and teaching and notice the connection and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it that's biblical friends Go, you see the citations there where this is demonstrated, a gifting of the Holy Spirit in combination with the recognition and calling of Christ's church who are the new covenant community, the temple of God, who are going to be the servants, who are going to be the priest, the under priest of Christ in, his, in this living temple. It's men who the Spirit has gifted and prepared and that living temple recognizes. Acts eleven nineteen 19-21, 1 Peter 4, 10-11 while we recognize this, while we admit this, a novice, or that is a newly converted Christian, yes, we admit, is equipped to give a very good testimony of the gospel, is equipped to share what the Lord has done in their life and evangelize others with the gospel. They have been brought into the new covenant. They've experienced it. And usually, This is the first activity you see in a new convert's life. They want to talk to their family members. They want to talk to their co-workers. They have to confront old friends. They have to begin to navigate and deal as this new creature in Christ in this fallen world. Admitting that in their abilities as a new new convert, friends, would we entrust them shortly thereafter to begin to teach others? Even more importantly, would it be unwise and improper, as I said before, to put them in the position of an elder or a pastor of a church? We know from the scriptures that the office of an elder, sometimes called bishop, sometimes called pastor, I'm of the position in the New Testament, they're used interchangeably. Uh, There's much you could read about that, but such an office is expressly reserved for men who can rightly fulfill the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, 2, and Titus 1, 9. And one of those requirements is that the person is not to be a novice. There's great warnings that accompanies that. And so while we admit and we agree that teaching is not solely for pastors, we would do well nonetheless, beloved, to notice and appreciate that the new testament presents an identification of men who are called of god and by his church endowed with graces and gifts who have been specially prepared by god as servants of his church they are to be found faithful and true and in so much as they are the ambassadors of god in his cause and his truth They are endowed with the authority of Christ himself to proclaim his word. And the church, the living temple, is given the diligent responsibility to heed their instructions and their teachings insofar, here's the catch, they adhere to the word of God. In so much as a man is gifted and sent and accepted by the church, he is being faithful to the word. He is by all new covenant participants to be listened to and to be honored and to be thanked for his faithfulness to the scriptures. Beloved, first, or verse 11 is not a contradiction of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 where we see that Christ gives to his church pastors and teachers. That's absurd. No, rather what is being taught is that all of these new covenant participants who have been converted by the power of the Spirit savingly know God, unlike the old covenant physical Israelites, these new covenant spiritual Israelites do not need to be evangelized. That's the meaning of verse 11. Well, let us bring our time together to a close with just a few concluding thoughts. Friends, according to verse 10, the latter half of 10, and going into verse 11, under this new covenant, this blessed reality, no longer is there an Israel within Israel. No longer is there a spiritual Israel within a physical Israel. In union with Christ, who is the mediator of this new covenant, by which it serves to be that channel in which we are in fellowship, intimate fellowship with God, all know Him. If there is no new birth, if there is no God writing His law upon the heart, and we dealt with what that meant, we even dealt with the experiential aspects of that. There's ditches on both sides of the road when you preach a message like that. But nonetheless, it is a necessary a requirement to be in the new covenant, a new birth. When that takes place, that is the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, there's many areas by which just an external connection to that new covenant community can bring blessings in one life. We would say yes and amen to that. Oh, but don't settle for just an external connection to the church of Christ. As Christ said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Friends, this is historic evangelism. This is historic evangelicalism. In our day and age, words get twisted, words get changed, meanings get changed. But historic evangelicals, they preached the necessity of the new birth. Why? Because Paul did And Peter did. All of the apostles did. The Lord Jesus Christ did. And that is our charge today. Is to come out in the highways and the byways and call men and women to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To flee the wrath to come. And when we gather together as new covenant believers, we are to be reminded and encourage one another Sunday by Sunday by Sunday of what Christ has done for us so that we know as an anchor of our soul, it is true, it is certain, it is awaiting fuller consummation at the end of this age. We remember the text we read from First Peter, right? The Holy Spirit that has brought you in union with Christ, it's but a down payment. It will preserve you and it will keep you unto the end when the full consummation of your salvation takes place. Who in here today cannot wait for that day to come? This pilgrim journey, Brother Ross, where we come to the end and we're free from the remnants of sin that we struggle with. We're free from the the conflict of the spirit and the flesh that resides within the truest of one of Christ's disciples. Oh, and we're free from the hurt and the pain and the consequences of sin that surrounds us on a daily basis. Friends, this is what is the new covenant community we do each Sunday. We come and to celebrate what we have in the Lord Jesus. We come to celebrate the truth of these realities. What a blessing it is to come again and again and anchor our hopes upon Christ. Amen. Let us go to him in prayer. Gracious Father above, Lord, we bless you and we thank you from the very depths of our hearts, O God, for how that you have preserved your word and presented it to us, Lord, here in Hebrews chapter 8, confirming, Lord, by your scriptures that, O God, you have called us into a totally different standing than the physical, external, old covenant Israelites and you have placed us as we will learn and subsequent messages you have placed us in that stream of your true elect by which your spirit has convinced us of our great need of the Savior and by which we cast our souls upon his perfect righteous work at Calvary O Lord I pray If there is anyone amongst us today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ and the ever-flowing fount of forgiveness for their sins, O God, would you, I pray, through our operation of your Spirit, truly show them their need. Truly show them, O God, that they are not as good as they think they are. Show them, O Lord, through their own pride. Oh Lord, how much they need to be forgiven of all of their vain thoughts of themselves and the actual transgresses and sins that they've committed against you and your holy throne. I pray that you would crush them, oh God, by the reflection of your holy and righteous law. And oh God, I pray that out of the mercy and the grace of the eternal love that you have for the begotten Son and all of those who you have given unto Him, that you would show that desperate sinner condemned under the weight of their own conviction and sin, show them the love of Jesus. Show them the cross of the bleeding Christ. And may they, O God, by the enabling of your Spirit, run freely and embrace him by faith. O may they, by faith, place all of their hope, all, dear Lord, of their cares upon Jesus Christ, the great head and mediator of this covenant that we have been learning about. Father, save, I pray, a soul amongst us today, if it please Thy will. And, O God, for all of us who who have not just sampled the new covenant blessings, setting under the gospel, but, O God, whose hearts have been broken by Your love and the truth of ourselves, we have drunk from the deep fountains of Christ's love. And we come once again Lord. And we praise you. And we thank you. And we ask you oh God. Keep this Christ ever so dear to our hearts. In him oh Father. We have a clear conscience. In and through him oh Father. We know that we are accepted by you. Keep us Lord. Preserve us, Lord. Walk with us, O Lord, and be our God, for you have made us your people. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.